0: Welcome to Strategies for Turbulent Times with your hosts, Matthew Werner and Dr. Kathy Greenberg, here to help you stare down adversity, adapt, improvise, and overcome the challenges you are facing in your own life. Now, here are Dr. Kathy and Captain Matthew.
1: Welcome to Strategies for Turbulent Times. We are so happy to be back live with you, and today... Matthew and I have a very special guest, but before we jump into today's topic, which is going to be surviving crime suppression, just want to check in with you, Matthew. I haven't seen you since, wow, I guess almost a month.
2: Well, that could be a good thing and a bad thing. It depends
1: on which side you're looking at. I'm
2: I'm dodging hurricanes in Florida as you're doing, you know, God's work, you know, teaching sheriffs up in Montana. So we're both doing good things.
1: I have a very quick story before we jump in here, which I think our audience will enjoy. So I have my daughter with me who's a grown adult, and we decide to go to the National Glacier Park. But Dum Dum here doesn't get the right pass to get in to the road to the sun. Just FYI, she's not talking about me. (laughs) So my daughter and I get to the park and we're all really excited. It's beautiful. And we get to the gate and they're like, no, this $35 pass gets you into the park, but not on the road to the sun, which is an additional amount of money, which you cannot purchase because they only give out a thousand a day. So Dum-Dum here has to pull over to the side. Once
2: again, she's not talking about me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm told by this lovely ranger that we can park our car in the West parking lot. And for a mere three-mile hike through grizzly country, I too can be at the visitor center within two hours. And that's if we make it past the grizzly bears. And if we really you know, keep a pace and make sure that we are uh, not carrying food Well, dum-dum here doesn't know any of this. We get out of the car, we're hiking, all of a sudden, two and a half miles in, we see this big sign, you have arrived in grizzly country and we're in the middle of the woods. I look at my daughter and she looks at me and I said, just for the record, the sandwiches are going that way, the chips are going that way and you and I are going that way. And she laughed so hard. I I think we may have needed some cleanup. But anyway, we had a great time. Uh, we did survive and we were not eaten by bears. So are you happy?
2: Yes. Obviously you're blessed, but uh, yeah, you worry me sometimes, but thank God you're home.
1: Well, the the, the best part was getting home because some idiot would not give up their bear spray in the airport. Finally, he got so angry. He took the can of bear spray (laughs) and he threw it into a trash can. And when he had the, you know, the can, he threw it real hard and it, exploded in the trash can at which point hundreds of people go flying because nobody can breathe including yours truly thank God i had my inhaler on me i was almost a uh, a victim of bear spray and here i am worried about a bear eating me and now i get sprayed with bear spray i this was the best vacation ever
2: <laughs> i didn't know that bear spray can make you
0: fly <laughs>
1: Well, let's get to getting here. We're so happy to have uh, John Rebanc with us today. And today our show is Surviving Criminal Suppression. And along with his other amazing stories here, being with uh, undercover narcotics and well over 200 high-risk warrants for SWAT. And as we said, that is no small endeavor. Um, Today, we're going to talk about learning how to succeed under threat, under stress and under fire. We are going to be talking to a seasoned professional. John, we're really happy you're here with us today. You've been an instructor for law enforcement and you're an FBI NA graduate. Uh I know we're going to talk a little bit today about how the tide the tide got turned on you, the tables got turned on you when you were doing investigations. And I don't think our audience may always know that being in law enforcement is high risk for a lot of reasons. And sometimes it's legal. So uh, one of the things we'll talk about today is how that impacted you in your career. But just let me give a quick bio here to all of our listeners. John has served since 2007 across SWAT as a team leader, uh, lead sniper uh, in the crime suppression unit, undercover narcotics and special investigations, CID, IA. And He also worked on homicide, robbery, rape, child abuse, sex abuse, aggravated assault, burglary, and child pornography, leading to the arrest and conviction of criminals in many joint operations with FBI, U.S. Marshals, ATF, Homeland, DEA, Secret Service, and ICAC. We are so happy to have you here today, and thanks for being transparent on strategies for turbulent times.
3: Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be able to speak about it. And I think it's a story that, that needs to be told. And I just hope to help out uh, our current and future generations of heroes. Uh, that are going through this crazy circus of a life.
1: It can be
2: very. Yeah. I appreciate you for being here, John. Uh, you know, just getting to know you here in a short time, just, uh, and understanding your career since, uh, it's not ever easy. And sometimes it's even harder than that statement. It's not ever easy. Um, And I'm excited to hear a lot about, you know, and share with the audience about what you've learned, you know, for strategies for turbulent times, you know, getting through those turbulent times and continuing to process what has actually been going on. But uh, I'd like to, uh, if we can go back a couple of years. Yeah, um, you know, before you got into this occupation, yeah. you know, who had the most influence on you, and also, um, what 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 do you think it was going to be like? So, when we talk about influences and mentors
3: and my life in general, um, so I came from a blended family. Um, I was the youngest of five, and um, my dad had two boys, which are my brothers. My mom had two girls my sister and then they got together and, and then they they had me and um so i was the youngest the oldest the next closest to me is four years older uh so i i grew up um I, don't, it's, I didn't grow up in a white picket fence fairy tale type of environment Um i did i was lucky enough to have both of my parents my siblings were not um but In the meantime, while we were being raised, my brothers uh, spent a lot of time um, with their mom and their other family, and my dad fought for custody of them uh, the entire time. Um, When I got older, that other side of life slowly started creeping into my life because of my association with my two brothers and uh, their their other side of their family was much less stable than mine. And uh, initially, um, they were my two greatest mentors were my older brothers there who I looked up to. And uh, they started getting into a lot of trouble, which is very ironic considering where I'm at in life now. Uh, I watched both of them uh, go through um, being arrested, one going to prison multiple times, the other one going to county jail multiple times. Um, and so leading into your question and, and trying to refocus there, my, my dad came to me when I was 17 years old and I was doing all the same stuff that my brothers were doing. Um, and my dad came to me one morning and said, um, son, I hope one of you turns out. Okay. That's the only thing I want. Uh-huh. And, um,
1: no pressure.
3: Yeah. yeah um, because of the other two, and I'm sure in his eyes, and obviously I'm speaking for him a little bit, and some some of that's my interpretation. But in his eyes, you know, our family name was running short, and he wanted that legacy to continue on. Uh, and I think that he thought, for him, whatever reason, whatever's going on with him, that I was maybe that last hope, uh, and it it created a very powerful impact on me to the point that I moved. I didn't, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to do any of this stuff. Um, I, I just woke up after that. I I guess I slept on it and I said, I'm getting out of here. Um, And so I moved completely out of that environment. I moved completely away from friends that were probably not my friends. I moved away from my brothers. Uh, One of them was in prison at the time doing a 10 year bid for assault on a, a police dog and a, High speed chase and all that stuff, and uh, so I moved to Cookville. I got up and I was like, I'm gonna take the ACT, and I, I took it. And Next to that, it was like, Oh, I got brains I didn't know that I have, and uh, I was like, Oh, they accepted me into uh, I actually could do something. yeah, I actually could do Good something. Feeling. yeah.
1: Although uh, I think you and I share some family members, yeah, I, I re- we're related somewhere,
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, so uh there's that, and it, and there's a little bit more, and I won't get too deep in the woods on that, but um I had an agriculture teacher who my dad um linked up with. And so my dad started putting pressure through my school resource officer, my agriculture teacher. These were these were men that were um that were strong male leaders and male figures, and that that my dad basically said, excuse my language, but he said, if you got to kick his ass, kick his ass. You know, um, I'm trying my best to make him not wind up like the other two. And my dad provided, and so did my mom, the same opportunities for my other siblings, too. They just, you know, some people just grow up and don't take to it. Um, But so I had my agriculture teacher, my school resource officer, and then my uncle, too. My uncle was a police officer. And um, when I was like five years old, Back in the 80s, uh, he put me in his patrol car, drove me around the neighborhood, turned lights and sirens off. Um, And I was really young when that experience happened. But I always looked up to him. He always mentored me, always tried to steer me in the right direction. But when I got with my brothers, you know, things just changed. Um, and so that's what I did. I moved away, went to college, came back, went to college again, came back, <laughs> went to college again. Uh, But I got a job in the meantime in law enforcement. I started out in a small rural police department in 2006. I worked there for a very short time. Um, They were just the first people that gave me a chance. Um, And then I went on and went on to the bigger agency where i currently still work at. And uh, came back, you know, and just put my nose to the grindstone. And I didn't give up on myself at the time. Mm -hmm. So as far as what I thought it was going to be like. You know, I really thought in my young, immature mind that it was going to just be like a cop's episode.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I thought I was going to be running and gunning, saving the world and chasing bad guys. And I thought, you know, I'd make
2: my dad proud by doing that. So, yeah, I I, I totally side with you on that, John. And, you know, being young and you feel like, you know, you're going to be that next generation that's going to learn the lessons learned of your seniors and your elders that are already doing it. Um, you know, it's just that, that, that visual of everything's going to be better, yeah. but the reality is we don't know how society, we don't know how the world's going to be turning yeah. and just also how those mentorship opportunities are going to come down to us, right. which, you know, I think you'd venture to say the same thing. Once you get into that uniform, you're getting fed with a fire hose, yes non-stop next thing you know you have how many years you know i'm,
3: yeah, I'm working on 18 now mm-hmm. and i feel like you know if i'm not looking at all those traumatic experiences if i could compartmentalize that a little bit and move them over i feel like i just started yesterday because it goes so quick yeah yeah it you're always so a new bit. guy yeah. no, it's,
2: it's nothing is the same Nothing ever happens twice. Like, you can just go, yep, got it, got it, easy day. Only easy day was yesterday, right? Yes, sir. You got it, brother.
1: (laughs) I'm enjoying the conversation and the connection between the two of you. And for those who are listening, if there is background noise here, and I think earlier you may have heard somebody take a big sneeze, we are live at TAC Ops East here in D.C. uh, with our friends from TAC Ops, and want to give a shout out to everybody. Also want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Magnusworks, the Wellbeing Platform, and also the National Man and Staff College. And so for those of you who may hear some things in the background or we don't have quite a clear show today, it's because we are actually hunkered down here in a glass conference room at TAC Ops East, but we didn't want to miss the opportunity to bring you a wonderful voice and heart like John's, uh, to talk about a subject that's near and dear to our hearts, which is how do we survive in these turbulent times? And law enforcement is more challenging than ever before. But John, it appears that in your career, challenges have followed you for a long time. So tell us a little bit about where this began for you in terms of the possible derailing of your career when you are serving your purpose and doing what you believed engaged your heart and mind in service to others.
3: Yeah. So um I when I started, I don't know, I, I was really good at it. Um it was na- it was just natural to me. I think I because of growing up in a confrontational um, household and seeing confrontations play out on the regular um, with family you know debacles or or whatever else um I took to it very well. Um, I wasn't afraid almost to the point of being you know ignorant or or what you know being being afraid's okay I've learned that uh, I wasn't afraid when I started. Uh, there were times that I got scared but um I just went out there and went after it and I thought you know, in my mind, and I don't know why we do this, but I was going to be the best. I was going to be the hardest-nosed. I was going to be the most skilled, the most technical. I was going to learn the craft, and I was going to just dominate the criminal world. Right? And that was my mindset every single day. Uh, I, For years, you know, the first several years, I woke up every day with a ton of pride to put on the uniform, and I would have done it for free. It was so fun to me that it was just everything I ever wanted to do. Um, and as I started going through, I, I, I got promoted to field training officer and I was, I was only on patrol for like, you know, less than three years. And then, uh, a guy, uh, who was over the crime suppression unit at the time, he came to me and, and really, um, you know, specifically recruited me and It's crazy. Cause like one day I woke up and I was reassigned to the crime suppression unit at the time. I'd already made I'd been on maybe three years, I'd already, and I'd, I'd already made SWAT, but I was I was nobody on SWAT team. I was doing perimeter work and, you know, cleaning equipment and carrying stuff and, you know, paying your dues, um, doing all that stuff. And
1: But they must have sensed that heart and yeah, that soul and that yeah. dedication.
3: Technically, I was, I was um, you know, skill-wise, I was on point. I had uh, maturity issues probably, and I needed some growth um just because i was just wide open all the time and um you know swat is a thinking man's game um and in the reality and in the framework that we work in you know all swat tactics techniques equipment everything's built off of life safety and case law Like a lot of people don't realize that a lot of young operators don't you know they're upset with entry tactics they're upset with breaching call. they're upset with all these different things and mm-hmm you know, in their mind, we're just supposed to do dynamic entry. And, you know, the world's changed, man. Case law dictates tactics, policies, directives, laws. You know, we don't rescue dope anymore. Um, We did that when I first got on. We did dynamic entry every raid. Absolute disaster um, for many reasons. But, um, you know, I just kept growing and I got put in that unit. And um, that unit was built because of an all-out gang war that the area that I was – working in we experienced we had the perfect storm we had hurricane katrina hit we had a large public section of public project housing close and then we had the housing market pop and then investors came in and bought all these up and they turned them all into um, government funded housing section Mm -hmm. eight homes Mm -hmm. Hmm. and so we end up having our local criminal element the New Orleans criminal element, and then our sister city criminal element all moving in all at the same time. And um, we ended up experiencing like 21 shootings in two weeks. And that was kind of unheard of at the time. And this was all in like three blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the unit was built, and it was designed to uh, operate within a legal framework, but I mean right to the edge. Um, You use every tool that is disposable to you legally to get rid of this violence and that's what we did um and i did that for a couple of years and uh, my adult i started maturing my adult add kicked in and then i just started bouncing all over the place different places uh but you know within that time i got involved in like three shootings like the first nine months i was in that in that position um you know i i got attacked by a, a great dane out in the middle of the street middle of the neighborhood and it was like a legit cujo call. Smoked that thing. And then I pulled a guy over who was coming to kill his um wife, unborn child her parents. And uh I got out and challenged him. He put a pistol to his head and blew his head off. Um, and then I was ambushed by a gang member in those in that in those set of blocks where that gang war was, and I got pinned down by gunfire. My own SWAT team had to come get me. Um you know, that probably should have been a clue for me then because I did start thinking, like, what am I doing? Like, why is this happening? Like, nobody else around me is getting involved in, in this level of violence. Um, but then, culturally, especially at that time, we're talking about like 2009, 2010, I mean, you just sucked it up. The world in law enforcement hadn't changed at that point. It was still, you know, that old school mentality. Uh, the federal government and DOJ hadn't come down and, and provided framework like they do today. So it was really, um, i you was know, shut up and row and yeah, uh, keep on, we'll just, call just keep you on blue collar, just
2: keep on doing let's the right things, go to work, do it right, and let's go to work. And I also suppose Katrina, mm-hmm. which is just a disaster, disaster. Yeah. Yeah. category five. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I never seen violence like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was with the displaced people and then dealing, you know, that culturally, I, I didn't know how to, none of us did, and that was our response to it. I mean, i seen things, um, you know, I went to a domestic. One time the guy's like, get get this girl out of my He's using a lot more explicit language than that. And I'm like, "Who stabbed? Because the call came in as a stabbing. He's like, get her out of my house. I'm like, who is stabbed? And then he turns around, he's got a butcher knife hanging out of his back. He's like, Me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, brother, brother, you need to sit down. Like, we, we, need, we need to deal with this first. You know, that that was the kind of regular, you know, ongoing thing during that particular time period. So I did that crime suppression as as just an operator um on SWAT. And still training. I started teaching firearms at the time too. And I did that for a couple of years. And I thought, you know what? I started feeling, and I didn't, because nobody talked about PTSD at that time. I didn't even know it was a, that it existed. Uh, but I started feeling like really out of character at times, very confrontational. Uh, and I could tell at that time it already started plaguing my marriage. Um, I just didn't know what it was. And then I thought, oh, this is just cop stuff. You live with it because that's what. My elders would tell me, right. you know, "Shut up and put up." You know that was the culture, um, but that's an important point. if you don't remind, please remind me mm-hmm. uh, as we talk about.
1: Oh, that. I'm not going to let that. And, um,
3: so, but anyway, so I moved. Um, a, a spot came open in CID, and I was like, yeah, well, "I'll go do that." Because, like, like I said, adult ADD. I learned something. I'm ready to move. Learn a new skill set. So I went in there as a detective. But the first six months, um, because of my background in crime suppression and working with narcotics, narcotics was short. So they put me back over narcotics, where I was a ground troop for narcotics as a CSU guy, street level. You know, narcotics does more long-term organized. Street crimes does street-level bad guy stuff. Um, up in your face, we go out and hunt every single night. And so I did that for like six months, uh, worked more and more on developing my undercover craft, had a few close calls there. You know, I was out I was out doing street level work with these people. And now I'm sitting in their front yards with a sitting on a pistol with a kel sitting on and a wire. Wow. And we're buying dope off of them. And you know, at the time I didn't have a thick beard like I have now. I had a baby face. You'll see it on my profile pic. Um you know <laughs> I that's like, that's like that's uh your high school pick, yeah man.
2: right but <laughs> um, you know I didn't well, did you feel like you had a target on your back at that time? Yes. That position.
3: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, And I was, you know, it kind of said, like, man, I came here to do general detective work because I want to work homicide. You know, I want to work. But man, that didn't work out. Um, I did work homicides, and I was really good at it. I found a niche interview and interrogation. But you, just like everything else, when somebody sees a skill set or talent or capability, they just load you with the work. And next thing you know, I'm in computer forensics and I'm in cell phone forensics. I'm getting certified to do that. Well, I thought that's cool because the world was transitioning at the time from flip phones to smartphones. And I could already see the connection from doing street level work that if I wanted convictions, I want to put real bad guys in prison that I needed to move into the electronic world.
1: Yeah. You either follow the technology yeah. or the money. Right?
3: And so unfortunately, because we were generalized. I end up getting all the child sex abuse cases and all the child pornography cases. So next thing you know, I'm, I'm doing, you know, 160 phones a year. Um, and I'm, I'm dealing with child rape and child sex abuse and man, that, that work, it takes a special human being to do that work. And I probably worked several hundred of those cases and, and probably worked, you know, thousands of, or not work, but had looked at thousands of images. You can't. You can't unsee that. And then I started noticing um, these particular people had certain, and this really affected me um, bad, um, that I started noticing that these people who engage in that behavior also are even more than, even more, uh, yeah, I'll say it, demented um, than they are just on the surface. It was like one could say anybody engages that the other sick. But then there's like even more peculiar because they break down in subcategories and they have fetishes within that culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I started seeing trends with certain with, with contacts I had with those suspects and doing those uh data analyzations within the cell phone forensic dumps. And I'll start seeing like, you know, this particular person liked uh, you know, mommy's son, and that was his, and then he had like, you know a trove of it and i remember questioning a guy in the projects one day um about that particular situation and he looked at me i was in i was interrogating him in his house and um because we had just executed a warrant on the house and we're doing a we did what we call mobile triage where we would do the dump inside the living room of the house um and i was going through it because i could do a quick like overview triage analyzation to see if, if this is the right guy or not i'm at the right place, or not. and. uh and he looks. He looked at me in my face and said, um, "Well, if nobody did, if nobody put it on the internet, then uh, we shouldn't be allowed to have it. But if it's on the internet, it should be legal." And that uh, it infuriated me. And I, I knew I almost, uh, like in my mind, I had one of those movie moments where I thought about just slapping the hell out of him. I didn't. My buddies, you know, did what good buddies do. And I said, Hey, man, get out. Cause I snatched the guy up. So turn around. But, you know, all right, I'll get out. Mm -hmm. In my mind, then I was like, you know, I was already having crazy nightmares at the time uh, in regards to that type of work. I had seen so much trauma. I had prosecuted and and, um, investigated and prosecuted multiple people killing their own children, leaving them in the back seats of their cars and having to do the autopsies with those children. And I didn't have, kids at the south thank god because i would have never been able to do that work but it was really starting to affect me then so what did i do i did what i did the last time i jumped again mm-hmm. so i'm going to do something different because this is starting to really screw with me
1: well i'm going to ask you to stay right there mm-hmm. just hold that thought sure. because we're going to take a quick break sure and then we're going to come right back you're listening to strategies for turbulent times don't go away
3: results will always favor the peak performer. Magnusworks is a cutting-edge mobile app to help you and your team build peak performance across 11 critical well-being domains to go from great to Magnus. Magnusworks balances individuals with real-time tailor-made check-ins with pulse vibes to increase mental, physical, and emotional well-being. It spans every aspect of your daily life. Get started now.
2: Inspire, educate, impact and transcend magnusworks.com that's magnus w-o-r-x.com
0: it's your world motivate change succeed voiceamericaempowerment.com Welcome back to Strategies for Turbulent Times. Have a question for Dr. Cat or Captain Matt? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now, back to the show. Welcome back
1: to Strategies for Turbulent Times. We're having an engaging conversation with an amazing guest, John Eubank. You've been talking about your experiences in crime suppression and how the criminal element was much more pervasive in your well being than you had ever imagined. And the environment in which you were operating mm-hmm. was not practicing. What we know today is human-centered leadership, where you have psychological safety, where you have people who are providing you with empathy and opportunities for support. And it was just a different world. And now you are at that point in your career where you can see how the puzzle pieces started falling into place for what you now know is post-traumatic stress. So keep keep talking about you you your coping mechanism was just to keep moving to a different front end. Yeah. Organization. Yeah, so on, pick on, it up on there. the
3: front end. I, I I felt like if I could just change, learn a new skill, I could just make it disappear. Um, So and the whole time I was doing that other job, I was always in SWAT and we were a very active team. Op tempo at the time was probably three hits a week on top of the rest of the work. Uh, I was on call every other week, so,
1: so your sleep cycles must have been just wonderful.
3: Horrible. I worked and I worked evenings too. Even as a <laughs> yeah. detective, I worked. The, I always worked evenings and nights. I never my entire career um, because I was. So you
1: know, even was if like you do, glory, you yeah, know, even oh, if I, you knew something was wrong, mm-hmm. the sleep cycle alone was preventing you from recognizing the stress.
3: I think that. Um, I think culture. I think one, maybe I was too scared to talk about it. And two, I think that um, at that time, I w- it would have been frowned upon.
1: Well, we, you know, I'm sure those of you who are listening will understand this, that all of our vulnerabilities in life are tied to our ego. Mm-hmm. The last thing we want to do is expose our underbelly and let other people know how truly vulnerable we are. That's just a human condition. Especially when you're in a lot of
2: workplace.
3: Like
1: Especially. That. And so for you to have tolerated that for how many years?
3: So I, I did that for 15 years straight before I made a change. Yeah. Um
1: and what and what was the what was the impetus for that change?
3: Um it was cumulative, but I after going back, so I ended up leaving there, going back to crime suppression as the division commander and um i had an edict from the boss at the time who was a very pro-police anti-criminal chief took all of the uh, red tape off and said get out there and get them and your edict is to wreak havoc on these people in a city and i did me and my crew and i was the i was the division commander i promoted out of cid and did that and, uh, man, the violence just now I was over crime suppression. I was able to redevelop it, retool it, bring in new technology, you know, fight crime in an asymmetrical uh, type of uh, crime fighting that hadn't ever been seen in the city before. I was using all the case law, all the technology. I was using all the and I hate to say it, but all the violence that I could within the fr- legal framework of the law uh, to put an end to it. And we used a multi prong We used aggression. We used our brains. We used case law. We used financial tools. We would we would take their cars, take their money, take their jewelry, uh, and, and seize it legally and go through the court process. So, I mean, we, we just implemented every tool in the book in order to put a stop to these criminal enterprises and gangs.
1: But, yeah, let's make sure that we are very clear that in many forms of crime, you have to be very, I'll say, Precise, and you have to use the precision of law, but with the precision of justice Mm -hmm. and the precision of tactics. Because when you're talking about the kind of violence against humanity that you're fighting, These were extraordinary circumstances. This is not your everyday community public safety. Oh,
3: absolutely. So, you know, we only targeted the criminal element. Uh, You know, I like to say, and I'm not discrediting any patrolman patrols, the backbone of our agency and somewhat the front line of the good forces on society. Um, But, you know, I didn't get to meet normal people in my everyday work. You know, my, my Wednesday was dealing with a human trafficker who had just brought back you know, three kilos uh, of cocaine and broke it down into squares and put it in females' vaginas. And if they couldn't put it in there, he would beat them and leave them on the side of the interstate in Florida. Uh, I mean, I, I dealt with people um, that were the absolute demons of the earth, and those people are inherently violent, and they don't always um, surrender. So the environment that I was in, our use of force was through the roof. uh, And my motto for the unit was always do it right and be safe, do it right being first, because I never ever wanted to be involved in any type of scandal. And I I never was um, in regards to, you know, officers being crooked, corrupt, or using force when it wasn't necessary. Um, Or let me say, I never had any accusation that was founded Mm -hmm. um, because we, we did what we were supposed to do. Now, people make accusations and use force cases all day, every day. But we we did it appropriately within law. But that's an extremely violent job. Um, and to be on the unit, you had to be a member of the SWAT team. You either had to have a canine or you had to be a member of the SWAT team. Uh, and that was our first qualification um, because those tools, those skills were invaluable for what we were doing. You know, and um we did everything from street level narcotics to targeted interdiction to human trafficking, sex offenders, sex offender registries. Um we we did we did all of it and it it ultimately culminated in an event for me, which started a downward spiral for me on a personal level, not not necessarily a professional level. And that 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 came eventually too. But I was involved in an incident um, where people in public housing were fighting. We responded to it just because it was 30 people fighting. We get there, and I ultimately put everybody uh, down at gunpoint. There's so many people. Um, A partner of mine had deployed a canine and brought it out to to gain compliance, and one person didn't comply. And uh, I thought that particular person was armed, and he ended up being armed. I, I thought he had a gun. He didn't. Uh he had a open buck knife in his pocket, but I didn't know at the time. I ended up getting into a, a physical altercation with the guy and he, he got bit. It got unfortunately it was in the height of the change in our society with police tensions and the focus of the media and the focus of DOJ and all these other entities, and it went viral and it blew up and it went around. I mean, I hit every news station for two and a half months, uh, which proceeded in a great amount of paranoia of Betrayal. I felt like the community betrayed me. Uh, I felt like the news media had betrayed me. And then my own chief called in the uh, overseeing investigative agency for the state to come and investigate, met with the DA's office and they started investigating. So I'm going through three simultaneous investigations. Wow. And the viral videos. I just
1: have no words for the kind of stress that that kind of an environment creates and, You weren't given any support. None. None.
3: None. And that was the first time that I noticed um, what I would call now, like real symptoms of PTSD. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were periods, like I didn't, there were multiple times I didn't sleep for 72 hours. I had extreme paranoia, um, anger, maximum cynicism. Uh, You know, everybody was a dirt bag, including my own agency because, at the time when you're in that bubble, nobody's mm-hmm. talking because they can't talk to you. You're in an investigation. Mm-hmm. They can't come and tell you, "Hey,
2: you're going to be cleared," because that will taint the investigation. So it's a double edged sword with how that works. Or just research. come in as a buddy, yeah. And then now, all of a sudden, they're going to be tainted because yep. you did the wrong thing, right? And that's it's a triple edged sword. Yeah, right? and then you start questioning yourself, right? After how? Um, I mean, after almost yeah. two decades, yeah. And i got a question for you on this, John. Um, at the time, were you still married? I was, yeah. And, I was- and I'd venture to say, and this is just from my own experience, is working with a lot of great operators and true patriots like yourself, mm-hmm. um, you, you kind of expect your, your spouse and your family to be there for you mm-hmm. and at that time it's hard for them to do that because they don't know what the hell is going to happen. Yeah. And so that goes with the analogy being a NASCAR when mm-hmm. you're an operator like yourself taking left-hand turns at 189 miles per hour. And all too often we look at the pit stop crew as our family. But once that car hits the wall at turn four, mm-hmm. reality is our family's in there with us. And unfortunately, a lot of us go through this. It's just in the ugliness of our occupations, that we just never got this training, like mm-hmm. careful, get a coach, get that yeah. solid mentor. That's going to be able to break that line. Right. Like you're saying, Right. that could be sitting all of a sudden, Hey, I'm your best friend. Mm-hmm. I'm on your buddy. Uh, I'm your wingman, And then all yeah. of a sudden an incident happens and now it's shirts. Yeah. You're waiting for that phone call because all that negativity, all that, right. that, 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 uh, the craziness that's going on in your brain. Yeah. It, and that, people just don't understand that. They don't. And that particular incident, man,
3: from start to finish, it it, it, uh, it went on for three years because, you know, shortly after I was hit with a federal civil rights investigation case. And I had to be in federal court multiple times to stand uh, uh, for something that I already knew I did what I, I was trying to live. I was trying to survive. And I, you know, I was always, again, my motto was do it right. Uh, You know, I I didn't just show up into an area and decide to pick one person out of that group and and use force on and make it go viral. No, I was in a bad area where I had previously worked multiple shootings and stabbings, and I bought dope from undercover. I knew what type of area that was, Um, and I knew what type of people lived over there and how dangerous it could be. And so I went there with 30 people who were just a mess. And ordered everybody on the ground. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I could have done some other things, but that's what I chose at the time. One guy didn't comply, and it just exploded into an absolute personal and professional disaster.
2: Well, and that, and that's a, the the ludicrous. You know, as we talk about the the VUCA environment, mm-hmm. the volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous environment that we mm-hmm. teach about, because you do so many years. You know, you had well over a decade mm-hmm. of solid, solid law enforcement professionalism in a lot of the darkest alleys of humanity. Right. And now all of a sudden something happens and it goes viral. Yeah. And now you're second guessing who you are, what you are, mm-hmm. how did you do it? Who's got my back? Right. And that's, that's not good for humanity. And we got to bring mm-hmm. something I was... back that senior law enforcement operators, we're not, we're not perfect. We're mm-hmm. all human. Yeah. And that support mechanism's got to come back. Yeah. There can't be all this walking on eggshells of your wingman, your yeah. buddy, your, your supervisor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen, but there's got to be a better support mechanism that, that y'all can reach out to. When, when I look back at my career, and this is what I
3: would spoken to a bit earlier, you know, I've been in probably 10 instances of gunfire. I've probably been in over a, well over 100 high-speed pursuits, multiple of which – Resulted in either fatalities or ejections or uh, different things. I've had under my command probably 18 dog bikes. I've done well over 200, probably closer to the 300 um, mission set for SWAT uh, completions. Wow. And when I look and then federally sued, criminally investigated, you know, and I've won the awards too. I've had the glory. I, you know, I've, I've been officer of the year. I've, I've had all these things, but I was I talk about it constantly now because of what i went through and then you know ultimately resulting in a ptsd diagnosis and two years of absolute hell uh but coming out of it on the other end and i don't i'm not a hundred percent out of it i mean i'll be honest with you but most of the time i'm in the 90 now i feel Excellent. pretty good i feel pretty Excellent. good and if life you know cups me in a bad way then some of those symptoms show themselves. Uh,
1: I just love the way you approach the subject, and I'm sure our listeners are absolutely mesmerized by your voice, the cadence with which you speak, the the just the intensity of the language and the visuals that you create right. in in your storytelling. And it's really, to me, a, a testimony to who you are and what you have been trying to achieve in your life. And this isn't about glory. This is about service. And we really have to bring the love back to our law enforcement professionals. Yeah. And we really have to make everybody feel a part of a community again, that is respected, that is, that is admired. Yeah. And I know there's always those bad apples out there. Yeah, we, we, we can't control how the hiring process works at all levels, but that's true in any career and in, in, in any point of contact with a human. Those of us who've been in the service industry know when you go and get a meal, you don't always get the best server. Right. Yeah. Um, we have to, in, in this story, John, we have to know what was it that made you reach out for help and how did that work? What was the process and what would you recommend to others?
3: So um, first off, um, I would say that, you know, I wish 10 years ago or, you know, when I was, before I was diagnosed, I wish somebody senior would have said, um, Hey man, you've been in a lot of stuff you've been a lot of stuff. Maybe you need to come in for a little while, you know, but that, and I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not mad because it, it, you know, it's taken me down this incredible road, but I don't, I don't say it's a regret, but man, I wish that would have happened because now um, what I end up going through, which brings me to your next question to answer it pointedly is I, I never had PTSD symptoms at work. I Even
1: started, yes,
3: mm-hmm. and I started noticing when I was driving home that I was, well, I thought it was a heart attack, Um, because I don't know, I never felt like that in my life, I didn't know what that was, but as I was driving home, I would feel my my face go numb, my breathing rate go through the roof, and then I would almost faint, I didn't know what that was, I was like, oh, dude, I'm having a heart attack,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Um so like the first thing I start, you know, I want to go get my heart checked and all this stuff. And then that's wearing on my head too, which is a point, you know, being super consumed with your well being, you know, is another symptom of post traumatic stress because your anxiety is so high. You get in your own head and you already been through all the worst in the world. So you go from zero to worse every time the thought comes into your head. Like, this is how the world works. This is what happens to people. Yeah. So I went there and then I started having GI issues. Um, I didn't I didn't understand at that time the connection between the brain
1: and the gut and,
3: and the gut. Yeah. I had no clue. Um those GI issues culminated in and I counted, and you know, it sounds weird, but I counted 62 days of absolute hell where I would wake up every single morning in a complete state of fight or flight. And I would only get three, maybe four hours of sleep. I would wake up. In complete fight or flight, 180 beats per minute, um, breathing through the roof and absolutely indecisive. I couldn't even make myself get out of the bed. And it's weird because logically, if people that don't understand how PTSD works, logically, you tell yourself because you can observe the, your environment and logically, you can say, hey, everything's okay. You're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. But what people don't understand is that that subconscious trigger that sent your nervous system your central nervous system through the roof it doesn't work it doesn't take commands from the logical side of your brain no it doesn't um, and I finally called my wife into the room after 62 days and I said hey I'm messed up bad and I can't make this quit and I've tried everything and she looked at me and I don't mind sharing this and it's hurtful. And I'm choking up right now. Um, but she looked at me, she said, I know, and you've been messed up for a long time. And I've never seen it. Yeah. People try to tell me, but what did they know?
1: We don't want to really see it. Yeah. Um, we don't want to see it. We want to love you through it. I yeah, you. Right.
2: And on that note, I mean it's it's and just thinking about the programs and the, the support mechanism, you know, that 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 armor. You know, Mm -hmm. instead of calling it a bubble, Mm -hmm. like armor protection, it's how do people communicate that? Right. And you don't really take it as hard because you're a fixer and doer. Mm -hmm. You know, just like you were throughout your whole career. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know what, this is kind of worrying me here. I'm going to fix and do something else. There's another, you know, I can continue to learn here and just continue to go up the ranks. And it's just to have those, the training for any member, any law enforcement officer, any you know, expert yeah. to have the training on what are the what are the what is the right questions to ask mm-hmm. and that's going back into that mentor and coach because they're going to ask you that hard hard question right because they're not your friend, yep. and they're gonna be able to say okay no kidding what's your peers saying about you what's going on in your career and you'll be able to open that up I'm not saying you John right just talking to the audience here that's going through the same life cycles, the same career cycles on having that solid person, mm-hmm. or two. It doesn't have to be one because it could be a coach on finances, could be mm-hmm. a coach on personal well-being, it could be a coach on multiple things. But the hardest thing is to hear is like, yeah, you've been effed up for a long time. Yeah. And you're going back and saying, Well, I should have pinged on this little yes. comment, I should have pinged on this yes. comment um this little window and all too often um there's nobody out there as a strong leader to say you know what Matt Cat John it's time to get off the train dude right you know i understand exactly what your career's done mm-hmm. and this is not healthy for yeah. any of us so we got to figure it out and we have to actually get you off the train and get you that time You know the pregnant pause the off-ramp as we call it um we just need a lot more leaders that are that have that intrusive leadership to understand what's going on now i don't want to hijack this the toughest thing that law enforcement is going through right now and even military starting to go through it is that the attrition rate is so high and these young leaders they don't know what intrusive leadership is to absolutely have a relationship with their people, mm-hmm. they're getting fed with a fire hose, and the last thing they have at the end of the day is mm-hmm. who is this person? All I'm doing is being a firefighter, putting out the fires from mm-hmm. up above and down below. So, to you leaders out there, I highly recommend looking to you know tactics, techniques to build be a better leader in intrusive leadership, so we don't have. More officers, more um, service members, first responders. Well, um,
1: let me just say this. Let me say this. So you're talking about, and and I want John to finish his story because there's a poignant, poignant moment here yeah. that he's about to share. And we've only had one break in this show, and I've done that on purpose because this is such a compelling story. I don't want to interrupt it again. But you talk about intrusive leadership, meaning you want somebody who's going to get involved who's going to take ownership of making everybody in the team work. And I call it human-centered approach to leadership because you need the self-awareness and the empathy to recognize when you need to be vulnerable and help that other piece of of, of the pie, which is that person's ability to be vulnerable with you so that you can get them from where they are to where they need to be. And so I think what you were just sharing Mm -hmm. was this moment after the 62-day yeah. period where your loved one is about to tell you something.
3: Yeah, and I apologize. I choked up a little bit. It's no, still it's, it's, tough it's to talk sure. about. but uh, So what.
1: We're here for the love. So on,
3: on day number 62, when I told her that, the reason why I told her that is because I never got to a point to where I wanted to hurt myself. But that morning, I understood why some of us do. Because I would have done uh, almost anything to make it quit, uh, which is in my particular um, situation, was a blessing for me because that means I was finally willing to seek treatment. And I ended up having four prong a four prong approach where I had to change environment triggers, cognitive uh, talk, medicinal, and sleep therapy. And sleep therapy probably being really high up on the list because. If
1: we just repeat that. Sleep therapy. Sleep therapy. Y'all are out there now thinking about mm-hmm. your sleep. And yeah. we know our friend Dave Grossman says the number one reason we get suicides, especially in law enforcement and the military, is lack of good
3: sleep. Yeah. And I want to tell people too, if they if you get a sleep study uh from a neurologist or from some uh, some doctor who specializes in sleep, don't do the take it home version. Do the sleep lab where they monitor your brain waves, your signals throughout your body, yeah. your respiration, your O2 saturation, all of that. Um, and and I don't want to sidetrack that too much, but I see more and more of my buddies who are getting sent home with these Packages. like risk cuff oh, yeah. Yeah. like that's not a sleep, sleep. What's a, what's going on in your brain? Because your brain is really the key to understanding how bad. You're suffering from but, whatever else,
1: but you're tapping into something here that Matthew and I see a lot of, and that is quick fix. Everybody wants a quick yeah. fix, and and while there are coping mechanisms we can all learn, and that's why we love the Magnus Works platform, right? Because it it's giving us hacks. It's a it's accessing us through pulses, questions, mm-hmm. and then giving us information that helps us but we have to go through some of the hard work to yes. get there and the hard yes. work you've done, John, and recognizing when you need that help.
3: And I'm still doing it. Me sitting here speaking with you two is part of that process. Excellent. Um, we love talk therapy because I don't, I think this is probably going to be me for the foreseeable future. I, I don't see me not being involved in this discussion, whether it's at the agency that I work at and I, I do, I'm overall training now. So uh, you know, I, I have a whole day just about this topic. Um,
1: well, but you want us to come help you. You just let us know and we're there.
3: I very well may reach out in that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, I, I guess um, we are getting up to that time where we have to start shutting down a little bit here. But you have been such a transparent, such an engaging, such an absolute, wonderful voice to share your story. I cannot tell you how touched I am um, and how sincere you are. I wish the whole audience could be here in the room with us. We we don't often get to have our guests with us yeah. and we're so fortunate that uh, that you've made the time to spend with us. Any, any advice for young public safety professionals coming in uh, to your community or trying to Understand if they even want to be a part of your community.
3: Yes. Um, you know, be open to the fact that we're all human and we're not bulletproof. Be open to the fact that this job will affect you. Um, you know, I I thought I was the toughest, strongest ever. And then I got a real ego check, real reality check. And, um, you know, mental health is the most important thing. It transcends your personal and professional life. And I'm going to say this, um, if you are affected by PTSD and the traumas of our work, you you have to understand that recovery is possible. It's hard work and it's long and it's not overnight, but we do get better.
1: Oh, so. my God. I could not have said anything better. Yeah. Amen to that. Matthew, is there anything you want to add?
2: Well, I just wanted to just. Tell you, I can't thank you enough. I mean, just, uh we have a great saying that I love, and Kat's taught me this through mutual friend of, uh, you know, our friend, Father Mike Mannion. But he has a saying that, you know, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And to run into you only a couple short days ago and just have that connection with you, brother, as yeah. well, wow. um, not knowing your story, Um, it's, it's God's way of staying anonymous. I do believe that. And I'm, I'm glad you're here yeah. sharing with the audience um i can't wait to have uh you know the future with you man just keep sure. on talking about what's going on so to change change pages as we do at the end of every conversation after some deep deep conversation i have one last question for you my man sure i like your shit kickers that you got on right now yeah buddy. but what's your favorite pair of socks what's your favorite type of socks
3: favorite type of socks I don't know where this is coming from and I'm I'm hesitant to answer. Um but uh
1: it's our surprise question we ask yeah, all of our guests.
3: Um yeah and I'm getting older so I
2: Were you wearing cashmere socks right now? No. No
3: cotton it's cotton white tube, man. <laughs> white tube socks, cotton you, you know the ankles will get chafed from the boots if not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but any other day, you know, if I'm not out on the farm wearing these boots, you'll find me in some Crocs lounging around, you know. So.
2: That's Cat's favorite.
3: Yeah. Crocs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are so blessed to have you with us today. Well, thank you. We uh, just want to give a shout out to everybody in our audience who's been listening. And if you ever need help, you know, you can call any one of us here. At any time, uh, you'll get the number, obviously, uh, when you listen to the show, and you can always go to our website. You can go to, uh, obviously, www.commandcollege.org and ask for Kathy Greenberg or Matthew Werner, and we'll be happy to help you out. And I'm at Kathy at drkathygreenberg.com. And of course, there's Matthew.Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R at me.com
2: just like the trucking company we keep america moving
1: <laughs> they're not a sponsor they can pay to be yeah here. that's true.
0: <laughs> right. let's cut that
1: uh, don't you dare maybe they will be a sponsor one day anyway we love y'all please uh keep coming back and uh sharing your stories with us we love hearing from you take care everybody
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Strategies for Turbulent Times. We hope Dr. Kat and Captain Matt were able to help you create a plan or simply steer clear of the unknown with ways to overcome challenges in your own life. Until next time, be brilliant and stay fearless.